too often it is said that film is a visual medium. Yet for too many films, the narrative is propelled not by its visuals, but by its dialogue, with the most salient information revealed through verbal exposition. So it is a rare film where the storyline is so densely woven that it isn't the dialogue, but the music that does the work. Pavel Pavlikovsky's latest masterpiece, Cold War, is one such film, with songs deployed to comment on that era's historical and geopolitical conflict. Yet the real stroke is that those themes are pushed to the background in favour of a more personal, existential and romantic drama. That is such a rarity I can think of precious few films that have managed anything similar. You must remember this A kiss is just a kiss A sigh is just a sigh The fundamental things apply as time goes by Co-written and directed by Pavlikovsky, Cold War tells of Victor and Zula, played respectively by Tomasz Kote and Joanna Kulig, whose fierce romance struggles in the face of even more fierce political tensions that blighted and divided Europe for decades. Since Pavlikovsky and his fellow screenwriter Janusz Glavaski wrote Victor and Zula as musicians, Cold War begins with renditions of traditional Polish ballads. Then, to reflect the tumult of the era, the story grinds those songs through the mill of Soviet ideology so that they literally sing the praises of Joseph Stalin. Next, it revives those same ballads with apparently antithetical jazz arrangements, only to finally corrupt them into tawdry tunes as played by 1960s show bands. In other words, Cold War uses music in a way precious few other films do. The various music genres adopted by Victor and Zula carry them from Warsaw to Paris, a journey which subtly echoes a similar one undertaken over 120 years earlier by Polish romantic composer Frédéric Chopin. At the time of his birth in 1810, Poland had been under the rule of Tsarist Russia for 15 years, and just as Stalin was trampling the Polish identity in the 20th century, so too had Alexander I's imperial forces ruthlessly crushed any Polish aspirations for independence in the 19th century. And it was that suffering that inspired Chopin to transpose traditional native polonaises and mazurkas into his celebrated nocturnes, fantasies and impromptus. For Victor and Zula, it is only when their journeys finally bring them to Paris that Cold War's music tour realises its most complex and sophisticated strains. 
Just like Chopin, Victor and Zula are exiles, and arriving in the City of Light, they find themselves in the orbit of other musicians, some of whom, while not necessarily exiles, are nonetheless at odds with their native land. From as early as the 1920s, Paris saw an influx of African-American musicians, artists whose genius was either underappreciated, unrecognized, outright rejected, and even cursed by swathes of their white compatriots. As a result, the likes of Count Basie, Billie Holiday, Duke Ellington, Nina Simone, John Coltrane, Coleman Hawkins, Sarah Vaughan, Lester Young, Bud Powell, Maxine Sullivan, Dexter Gordon, Hazel Scott, Dizzy Gillespie, Alberta Hunter, Thelonious Monk, Miles Davis and Charlie Parker all grace the city's bars, clubs and concert halls. It is in Paris that Victor and Zula record an album that mixes the traditional Polish ballads with improvisational jazz structures. But music is not the only thing that Cold War subverts. It is genre as well. Pawlikowski loosely based his plot on the lives of his own parents, whom he described as the most interesting, dramatic characters I've ever come across. Both strong, wonderful people, but as a couple, a never-ending disaster. They had a very complicated life. They changed countries, husbands, wives, and they kept coming back to each other. Yet despite his parents' influence, Cold War is neither a biopic nor a memoir. Indeed, given the film's title, we could be forgiven for thinking that the chosen genre would be espionage, such as From Russia With Love, The Manchurian Candidate, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, Funeral In Berlin, The Book Of Daniel, Gorky Park, or Tinker Taylor's Soldier Spy. He said, there's a mole right at the top of the circus that he's been there for years. It does mean you're rather well placed to look into this matter for us now, doesn't it? Outside the family. I'm retired, Oliver. You fired me. Instead, Pawlikowski uses the genre of historical romance. And if we examine that convention, whether it be in the form of literature, theatre or film, we see that the challenge each storyteller faces is how to maintain the tension between the lovers. If the two characters are in love, what is stopping them from being together? Very little, except external forces. Historically, a big stumbling block would be religious teaching, as can be seen from as long ago as the 11th century, when the nun Eloise d'Argentoy fell in love with theologian Peter Abelard. There, it was sacred scripture that provided the tension and framework for novelists as diverse as Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Mark Twain and Marion Mead. But for Shakespeare, it was in faith or religious dogma 
but rather rivalry between the Montagues and Capulets that forbade Romeo and Juliet from being together. Then, in the 19th century, Alexander Dumas drew on his own experiences to write The Lady of the Camellias. That novel is not just a romance, but also a commentary on the self-righteous and hypocritical society of Demimont France, which demanded that haute bourgeois Armand Duval not wed Marguerite Gautier because she was a courtesan. Another obstacle has been homophobia, but it is only in the last century or so that authors such as André Guide, Ian Forster, Patricia Highsmith and Annie Proulx have addressed the obstacles with the counterfeiters, Morris, The Price of Salt, and Brokeback Mountain. Yet all the while, filmmakers have continued with more established tropes, with films such as Allied, A Very Long Engagement, Moulin Rouge, Legends of the Fall, Havana, Out of Africa, An Officer and a Gentleman, Ryan's Daughter, and The Way We Were. Yet Cold War is so particular and precise that Pavlikovsky unwittingly exposes those titles for the bloated, self-aggrandizing romances they are. Hubble, you are telling me to close my eyes and to watch people being destroyed so that you can go on working. Working in a town that doesn't have spine enough to stand up for anything but making a blessed buck. I'm telling you that people, people are more important than any goddamn witch hunt. You and me. Not causes, not principles. Hubble, people are their principles. At once epic but intimate, Palvakovsky's story is episodic in structure. This results in brief yet highly compact sequences, where it is assumed that the audience not only has a working knowledge of the story's historical context, but is also able to fill in the gaps that happen between the chapters. And that working knowledge adds subtle layers and interpretations to Pavlikovsky's romance. With the defeat of Nazi Germany and imperialist Japan in 1945, the two surviving ideologies of capitalist democracy and communist totalitarianism faced off against each other. Unlike World War II, however, both sides in the Cold War had a nuclear capability, and so tensions quickly sharpened into a case of which would blink first. One obvious way they kept a close eye on one another was by deploying spies and recruiting double agents. Pavlikovsky crystallizes that reality when he and Zula reveal to Victor that she has been reporting back to the authorities on everything he does. But does she carry this mission with her throughout the story? She certainly follows him to Paris, where she transforms from a singer of traditional Polish ballads into a jazz chanteuse. And then, back in Poland, where she has married a member of the Communist Party, she slides into utter disillusionment. But that abuse began before the film started. Even before Zula meets Victor, she has served time in prison, because, in her own words, my father mistook me for my mother, and I took a knife to show him the difference. Cold War repeatedly uses Victor and Zula's relationship to echo the wider political situation. Far too calculation to confront each other directly, the United States and the Soviet Union diverted and diluted their conflict into small theatres around the globe. Southeast Asia, South America, Africa and the Middle East, where for decades the local populations were manipulated into proxy wars and pushed about like pieces on a chessboard. In the film, 
That chessboard is the romance between Victor and Zula, and the pieces are their erstwhile lovers and spouses. And just as their amorous engagements never really close, so too do the Americans and Soviets maintain an equilibrium of sustained aggression, or to maintain the chess analogy, a stalemate. But the standoff could not hold, and in reality it was only a matter of time before the pressure became so great that one side would collapse. Thankfully, it was the Iron Curtain that fell, the Soviet Union crumbled, and by 1991 the free world had won out. The whole terrifying era had lasted over 50 years. By comparison, Palpakovsky's feature takes all of just 89 minutes to depict its tale of turmoil, torment and tragedy. The Cold War wasn't just an era. It was a culture that affected behaviour and thinking, creating not only tension, but words and phrases to spread and enforce that tension. Checkpoint Charlie, Duck and Cover, Fallout Shelter, KGB, Minutemen, Nuclear Fallout, Nuclear Proliferation, Nuclear Winter, Ostopolitik, Point Alpha, Politburo, Proxy War, Refusenik, Securitat, Solidarity, Sovietization, Sputnik, Stasi, each were near constants in conversation. And then, more specific to the world of espionage, there was Asset, Asset Validation, Black Ops, Brush Contact, Confusion Agent, Exfiltration, Eyewash, False Flag Recruitment, Ghost Surveillance, Metka, Rabbit, Sleeper and Walk-In. So much of it, it was as if George Orwell had compiled a dictionary of newspeak. Do you remember writing in your diary, freedom is the freedom to say two plus two equals four? Yes. How many fingers am I holding up, Miss? And if the party says there are not four, but five, then how many? Five. The thing to remember about life under communism is that since communism claimed it would deliver a utopia, it was counter-revolutionary to be unhappy. It is only unhappy people who cause trouble. And while the revolution had been birthed by unhappiness, it was the Tsar who had been the source of that discontent. With the Tsar gone, logic dictated that happiness prevailed. But by insisting that everyone was happy, the Supreme Soviet terrorised the people. And within that terror, the only thing people had was fear. Which is why Victor and Zula end up the way they do. Just as he did with his previous picture, Ida, which earned him the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film, Pawlikowski opted to film Cold War in black and white. And just as he had done with Ida, he and cinematographer Lukasz Zal imposed on the frame the strict aesthetic of the 4-3 aspect ratio. This marks a confident departure from Pawlikowski's earlier career, when, with the theatrically released features Last Resort, My Summer of Love and The Woman in the Fifth, he always shot in colour, in 185, and with a loose, often handheld frame. The common assumption about 4.3 is that with its emphasis on the vertical, it heavily restricts a horizontal space. But given that 4.3 has such classical antecedents, look no further than the paintings of Michelangelo, Rubens or Rembrandt, the more gifted filmmakers understand that what may be lost in the breadth of the frame is more than compensated for in the depth of the frame. At several crucial points in Cold War, what is staged in the foreground is offset by what is happening in the background. 
all to subtly suggest the story's deeper geopolitical realities. Reinforcing that unique approach, Zal keeps camera movement to a minimum. And significantly, it is in the Paris episode that the camera enjoys its greatest freedom. <laughs>